Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Ella Whelan, I'm the assistant editor at Spiked. And this week I talk to Frank Faraday about George Soros and other oligarchs. I catch up with Emily Hill about her new book, Bad Romance. And Joan Williams talks about the American white working class in an extract from the Spiked review. Last week, The Telegraph ran a piece on George Soros, a billionaire who has funded Best for Britain, an organisation that, put simply, is for people who don't like Brexit and want it stopped. The Telegraph's piece declared that Soros was funding a secret plot to thwart Brexit, and this was criticised as anti-Semitic. Soros is often himself on the receiving end of anti-Semitism, but The Telegraph was right. He is openly funding a now not-so-secret plot to thwart Brexit. So what's going on here? Why is it okay that Soros gets involved in splashing cash and meddling in politics? Should we be concerned about the growing influence of oligarchs in democracy? To find out, I spoke to professor and author Frank Faraday. So Frank, uh, George Soros, a very, very, very rich man, a billionaire, gives money to Best for Britain, Gina Miller's organisation, which is ostensibly seeking to stop Brexit. And George Soros actually even tweeted to explain himself. He said Brexit was a tragic mistake. And The Telegraph writes about this and people lose their minds over it. I mean, what do you think is happening here? Well, I think there's a a very interesting situation because many of the peoples that are standing up for Soros would have very strong views about the Koch brothers in the United States, and they would say, how dare they finance political parties, even though they're doing it in their own country. Uh, But when it comes to their own hero, they're being very, very selective about it. And what they are really incapable of understanding is that there's something fundamentally wrong when an oligarch, a billionaire oligarch, plays God and decides that he knows better than millions of other people as to what is in the best interest of British society. And I've got no problem with rich people playing a role in politics. But I do think that that needs to be pointed out, that when a foreigner feels that they have the authority to determine what is right and what is wrong for Britain and to finance uh, a political movement, I think we are talking about something that's inherently anti-democratic. What do you think of the glorification of Soros? Because I read a Guardian article um, this week that called him the best of the 1%. So there's this idea that Soros kind of stands out away from the rest. And actually their reasoning was that he was open about what he was doing. So the fact that he tweeted and said, yeah, I'm trying to stop Brexit, seemingly made his meddling better than others meddling. And why has he been marked out as the kind of the okay billionaire meddling in politics? I think Soros has uh, always uh, promoted himself as this open, tolerant individual. And I've got no reason to to kind of call into question his personal motives. Uh, And he's always presented himself as this savior of democracy, particularly in East Europe, where he's played a very active role in financing foundations and non-governmental organizations. And I think that, uh, you know, he has really taken a very active role in the culture wars that are going on. And he very much personifies the kind of politics uh, of, uh, of, of movements, you know, social justice movements, of movements that promote what's called transnational democracy, which basically means uh, promoting uh, cosmopolitan organizations against nationally based political parties and political movements. And I think in this culture war, you know, in the, the media and the cultural elites find Soros to be one of their own. His R 
oligarch and therefore is a good guy. Well, do you think Brexit has uh, plays a role in this? Because obviously the fact that it's ostensibly been people who support Remain who have backed him up. And of course, the Telegraph article was all about the fact that he was trying to stop Brexit, which he was open about. Is, is that it? Is it kind of acceptable because he's doing this good thing? He's trying to stop Brexit. Yes, I think that when it comes to uh, the, the polarized political uh, landscape that we live in, a lot of people almost lose their critical faculty. And as long as somebody is on our side, or as long as somebody is the enemy of my enemy, you kind of uh, uncritically embrace that. And I think 10, 30, 40 years from now, if people will look back, they will be quite you know, surprised that some of them supported uh, somebody, um, an individual, to, to the point at which that you know, the whole meaning of an electorate, the whole meaning of people voting, uh, becomes downsized and downgraded because of that. And I, what I really worry about is that we're now entering into this uh, interesting oligarchical moment. I don't know if you've noticed, but we tend to call only Russian billionaires oligarchs. Everybody else gets called by a different name. And I think we need to remind ourselves that uh, someone like uh, Soros is no different than uh, all these people that, that come out of the Ukraine and Russia uh, use their, their wealth uh, for all kinds of what I would say is dubious purposes. And when you're comparing the uh, both sides of Brexit, so there's been a huge amount of criticism of someone like Aaron Banks, who uh, gave money to the Leave campaign. He's been criticised. as There's even been suggestions that he's had Russian cash to fund Brexit. And that kind of um, meddling is bad, and it's said to be kind of corrupting and conspiracy theory infested. And yet the what you've just talked about in relation to the reliance on oligarchs to kind of take control, like Soros to, to meddle in a good kind of way, is that expressing the kind of reaction to Brexit that actually we can't trust normal people to deal with this? We have to have the imposition of people with influence, whether that be political or wealth, to kind of sort out this mess as it is. Yeah, I think so. I think there is a, a very kind of self-conscious elitist project where you have you know, people like Gina Miller coming in and using the courts and using her wealth to try to thwart the will of the people. You have other people coming in with their money and their financing movements, promoting projects in order to ensure that um, the Brexit project is, is kind of sabotaged. Uh, I do think, however, that in so far as we're discussing the role of wealthy individuals, we need to be consistent. And I myself, I don't, even though I support Brexit 100%, I don't particularly like people like Aaron Banks or any, in, any rich individuals having a disproportionate role. Uh, I think that they are citizens. If they are citizens of this society, then they have every right to play a full political role, but not because of their wealth, but but because of their participation. And I do think that, although I wouldn't have any laws against uh, the provision of money, that that we should, you know, as Democrats, as true Democrats, uh, kind of worry about this trend towards the wealthy playing this incredibly important role. I think what we're doing is we're Americanizing politics, Americanizing our politics in the bad sense, where wealth has got a disproportionate uh, power in electoral politics. I want to ask you about the criticism of the Telegraph piece was ostensibly that it was anti-Semitic. People claimed that especially the use of the word secret plot against Soros was, um, people said this it was a shock to have such levels of anti-Semitism on the front page of a British paper. And I know that you've yourself raised the issue of anti-Semitism, spiked has many times, but was this a case of anti-Semitism? No, I mean, I, I think, uh, to be fair, that from time to time, Soros does become the target of conspiracy theorists and anti-Semitic propaganda. 
Uh, and you get that. I mean, that, will, that's, that happens to almost everybody who's active in political life, especially if you're wealthy and if you stand out. But if you look at the Telegraph article, there was nothing anti-Semitic about it other than the fact that the person they were discussing and criticizing and questioning was Jewish. And it seems to me that uh, what, what, what's happened now is that the charge of anti-Semitism is used by all sides in a very opportunistic way, to the point at which you know they actually you know fuel you know, real anti-Semites and, and and almost create a, a terrain where anti-Semitic propaganda can actually flourish, simply because everybody is criticizing everybody else as being anti-Semitic. And I think that I, I really resented, especially coming from a Jewish background, the way in which. Uh, the Telegraph's critique of, of Soros was kind of promoted in this kind of way. I think it really cheapened the whole memory of, uh, of people and who have suffered from anti-Semitism. And I do think we need to be a bit more grown up about using these kinds of epithets in such promiscuous way. And what do you think about the fact that, as far as I could tell, it was mainly left-wing commentators who were using the charge of anti-Semitism. So you had James O'Brien on LBC and many Guardian columnists kind of pillarizing this as saying it was anti-Semitic, using that kind of, using that narrative to criticize this. Are you shocked that that's the stance that many on the left are taking today? I do, especially because you know, a lot of people on, on the so-called left are, are extremely silent when real manifestations of anti-Semitism come to the surface. And I remember when I was talking to people about some of the uh, outbursts of anti-Semitic attacks in Malmo, in Sweden, because of their love of Sweden and the um, Swedish welfare state, they just simply refused to acknowledge what was really going on. And you know, very often when you find uh, critics of Israel failing to make a distinction between their hatred of Zionism and their d- and dislike of Jews, uh, and you say, well, that's actually anti-Semitic. You're not just being anti-Zionist, you're being anti-Jewish. People just kind of you know, shrug it off, and how can you say that? Uh, yet the very, very same people that seem to ignore some dimension of anti-Semitism are quite prepared to use the, the, the kind of epithet of anti-Semitism to make charges of people that aren't even being anti-Semitic. And I think what that, you know, what that tells me and what I'm really disturbed by is the way in which anti-Semitism has ceased to have any kind of uh, sort of relationship to what people are really doing and has acquired this kind of standalone charge that you hurl at people left and right. Although all while this is going on, under the surface, it actually incites people to become uh, you know, more anti-Semitic than they would have been otherwise. I mean, that's the tragedy of this opportunistic use of the, of the term anti-Semitic. Well, to finish, Frank, I always ask people when we talk about Brexit on this podcast why it is that this thing, Brexit, is still worth fighting for, still worth defending, and what do you say to that? I think the uh, the reason why people are so uncomfortable with Brexit, who are you know, who oppose it, is because they realize that something very unique and very special happened there. If you look back over the last hundred years, we find it's only in very rare circumstances that ordinary people rise to the surface and take matters into their own hands. It's very rare when people feel the, uh, the capacity and the ability to uh, challenge the existing political regime. And in particular, it's very, very rare when people do that, not in order to get maybe a a few more pennies here uh, in order to improve their immediate economic lives, but to do it for something that's almost visionary. It's a more long-term thing that is not necessarily in their immediate personal interest, but is in the interest of their whole community. It's about a different way of living. It's about taking control and assuming uh, a measure of control of your destiny. And I think when people do that, 
there are a lot of people uh, who are supporters of the existing regime who have bought into the values of the existing political elites feel very much upset and, and destabilized by that. That was Frank Faraday on Soros and Brexit. Now for our next guest. I'm going to start by reading you just a few lines from her book. Her marriage, she knew, had been a grubby transaction, a bore and also a sham. But to be widowed by Somali pirates when so very young, it restored her faith in the fairy tale ending, and she lived happily ever after. This is Bad Romance by Emily Hill, a journalist and now an author of a brilliant book of short stories about love, or perhaps they're about the lack of love. Hill's stories feature women who have been unlucky in love, but it's not chick-lit, tearjerker material. When Hill's heroines get bitten by disappointment, they bite back. From smoking pregnant wedding ruiners, alcoholic models to superwomen murderers, bad romance takes revenge on the traditional romance story. So what does Hill think of everything that's happened recently from the rise of Me Too and the problems that that brings with sexual relationships, fear and suspicion, to the growing number of young people who rely on apps and dating sites to get them hooked up? Well, I caught up with Emily in Mayfair over cocktails to talk about her view of love, sex and romance. Okay, so Emily, let's start off with the inevitable question of why you wrote this sort of anti-romance, romance book of stories. I mean, did you feel like it was time for an antidote to all the mush that we can think about in relation to romance stories? What, what was in a spur you want to write these? I took the old model, which I had learned from reading in everything Ian McEwan and everybody else has ever written, that you, what you did first was you wrote a book of short stories and then you wrote your novel. So I wrote my book of short stories and then learned that nobody ever publishes short stories and it was a complete waste of my time. But I got so far, I thought, right, the thing is, the thing that I get, gets me rather annoyed um, about current dating things, I mean, especially with, with all these young feminists who are very feisty and, and kind of not really feisty, I mean, they present themselves as feisty, but they sort of say the most terrible, aggressive things, is they've all got boyfriends, and they're all in sort of these very comfortable, cosy little relationships. And then the, the other thing is, is the commissioning editors... I'm mostly married, and then everybody else is a man. So, like, the, and the thing is that there are more single women alive today than at any point in history. There's absolutely no recognition of that, apart from Fleabag, who is insane. So that pissed me off a bit, because I was like, well, you know, just because I haven't got married and had babies, it doesn't mean that I haven't had my stories. And, and I've been a bit of a... I've just been a bit of a disaster, really. I suppose I've, I've kind of got screwed over again and again and again and again and again, which, which, you know, breeds a lot of good stories. You know, you've got these sort of tales and sort of these lunatic things that you've done, and, and they always turned out very, very badly for me, and I was a complete loser and, like, just ended up crying in the corner uh, on my own and drinking far too much. So in my stories, like, my heroines are a lot sort of gutsier and braver and more brilliant than I am and sort of did all the things that I wish I had done. I mean, like, you can't do the things that my heroines do because you'd get carted off to a lunatic asylum or jailed. But I love my girls, so I, I suppose I wanted to, um, yeah, I wanted to write about women. I wanted to write about single women uh, whose stories just haven't ended in a happy ever after. Because um, I really don't think that we've been addressed anywhere apart from Sex and the City and 
Bridget Jones, which was 20 years ago. One of my favourite stories is the one where a woman has thunderbolts at her fingertips and just absolutely savages everyone and anyone in her wake, which I'm sure we all have felt like at some time. But one of the kind of key themes throughout the stories is the issue of commitment and intimacy and that kind of feeling that lots of us, mainly women, will have had certainly in our younger lives. I know I felt it when you just don't understand why men don't have the same feelings of commitment or don't have the same commitment to commitment and I think that do you think that's a problem in relation to the issue of intimacy today because with you mentioned dating apps and sex is all over the telly and I'm in danger of sounding like a prude here but when sex is as easy as it ever has been it seems like as you said there's more single women there's less relationships marriages end sooner and more frequently I mean do we have a problem with commitment today do you think um, so what I'd say, first of all, so the story that you're mentioning is called Goddess Sequence. And originally, when I wrote all my stories, I had epigrams at the start of every single one. And the one that started Julia's Baby, which is the one that was published in The Spectator and is probably the most popular one, was um, by Stalin. And it said, uh, I trust no one, not even myself, which I think is very, very true. And the one at the start of Goddess Sequence was by Pablo Picasso, which is there are two types of women and doormats and if you think about that you'd rather be a goddess than a doormat and I think that's what I particularly like about Julia and about that goddess heroine is they kind of, they get terribly screwed over and they're saying I'm not putting up with this situation and I suppose that's how it's different to me in my life because I, yeah I do think that we have um, difficulties over intimacy I think the thing is I think men have kind of the thing is like Jermaine Greer and, and, and brilliant feminists like that in the, in the, in the past they sort of said women did things better and sort of having feelings and sort of owning your feelings and, and being free and you know having sex the way you want to have it and is you know what we should aspire to and I think nowadays we, we aspire to have or, or the culture is to have sex like a man and I don't think I don't think I don't think it's even advisable for women to have sex like men because we have entirely different needs I mean like one of the things that nobody rails about is the orgasm gap because um, men you know in terms of how they're equipped and so forth they find things rather easy and we don't so if we're thinking about the quality of sex and how we're having sex it's really not geared towards women at all and I think um, that's worth looking into. So the publication of Bad Romance is very timely, we're in the midst of a real panic about sex in many ways. Potentially I think we have differing views on Me Too yeah. uh, but certainly what we can say about it is that the relationships between men and women have been thrown into public criticism, they're extremely fraught, there's discussion about consent and harassment and the invitation of regulations into private lives but also a genuine dis- attempt to have a discussion about the remaining problems between the sexes and sex and how we go about it so was that kind of obviously the writing of the stories preempted that but was that in your mind as you were looking at sex especially in relation to the to the stories it wasn't in this instance because the thing is, is me too has just blown up in in the last you know in the last year and bad romance was written years ago what i'd say on me too is i mean i, th- I think it's 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 kind of it, the same with the dating apps and it, it like there's this culture which is among women which is completely detrimental to women and so instead of sort of saying it's all to do with patriarchy we should be looking at like how we're behaving and just stop behaving like that I mean 
because I basically agree with uh, Julie Birchall wrote a very 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 good blog for the Spectator which said the brilliant thing about me too is I can't remember who she quoted but she said you know if a woman told the truth of her existence it would split the world apart and I do think that I mean like I've been sexually harassed I think I've lost jobs because of it I think and it hasn't been a very pleasant process I would never out those men. I would never wish to out those men. I wouldn't want to destroy those men's lives. I, I get quite pissed off, to be honest, listening to people like Kate Maltby say somebody, you know, Damon Green grazed her knee, which is ridiculous. And she's made her career out of it. And and this is this is the trouble, you know, it, which trivialises the very serious rapes that do happen. One of the striking things about the women in the stories you write is that their revenge is savage on the men yeah. who wrong them. And um, that's actually quite a controversial kind of point to make at the, at the moment, dare I say it, because the whole the problem that I have with Me Too, and I'd largely agree with what you just said, but the problem I have is he kind of hates women as if the minute something bad happens, some bad things do happen, you know, the world's over and we can't do anything about it. And the women in your stories do stuff about it. I mean, yeah. they really fight yeah. back. So it, it, do you feel that tension in the Me Too thing that it kind of robs women of their agency actually to get their own back in some cases? I think the most horrifying thing I read, which was read to me by a friend, was the account of this girl who went out on a date with Sam Chris, or not a date, she went out to some kind of event with him. He kept behaving in a way that she really didn't like. And she was staying in, in this situation because he was a very powerful man and he had the ability to commission her work. Now, what I would have done in that situation was take the wine that he had forced me to have when I wanted an orange juice, thrown it in his face and told him to fuck off. <laughs> and that is the appropriate way to behave in that situation and can't let anybody treat you like that. That's not how you deserve to be treated. And I suppose the thing is with my heroines is I, in the past, did let myself be treated in a certain way. We all get second chances if we write fiction. That was Emily Hill on her new book, Bad Romance. Get yourself a copy. Now, our final guest is Joan C. Williams, director and founder of the Centre for Work-Life Law at UC Hastings College of Law in America. And she's the author of White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. And in the last month's Spiked Review, I talked to Joan about her book, about why the US has a problem with class, especially white working class men. We talked about the differences between what she calls the professional managerial elite, or the PME, and the white working classes, and whether or not the two could come to some understanding of each other. You can read the entire interview in the Spiked Review. The following is an edited extract from our conversation. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. How are you, Jen? Good, thank you. First, I'd just like to start off with the not necessarily simple question of why you decided to focus on this issue and write this book. I've actually, I was was rereading part of a book that I'd written in 2000, and I realized that I had articulated many of the ideas all the way back then, nearly 20 years ago. So I've been thinking about these issues for a very long time because I am a silver spoon girl who married into a white working class family in 1978. I wrote these ideas up comprehensively for the first time in 2009 as a result of 
the Massey Lectures, which I gave at Harvard. The title of the lectures was Obama Eats Arugula. But in the United States, we're not keen about talking about class. That, that book fell into a black hole and was never heard of again. Then the, the night of the election, I left an election night party and just said, I am really going to say this in the most direct way I can because People really can't, we cannot as a country afford to avoid this, uh, to, to ignore this. And just tell me about this uh, great term you've coined class cluelessness and why, uh, in essence, that has been the kind of cent- the central problem that the book deals with, the idea of class cluelessness. In the United States, and it's true to a significant extent in Europe as well, since the 1970s, the culture has been very committed to understanding and remedying social inequalities. Uh, But the focus in the U.S. has been first on race, starting in the 1950s, then on poverty, starting in the 1960s, then on gender, starting in the 1970s, then on sexuality, starting in the 1980s, then very much focused on immigrants, starting probably in the 2000s. And the glaring omission is social inequality based on class. We have long been allergic to acknowledging the existence of class in the United States. If you have a social dynamic where you focus on every form except for one, the people who are affected by that one in this case, class, are bound to get pretty cross about it. Just digging into sticking on the issue of class identities there, I mean, because you give some great examples about class sometimes being indicated by coffee shop choices or levels of culture or um, is there within that a kind of indicator that class has actually become sort of fetishized, that it doesn't have that for people who identify as a certain class, it doesn't have a huge amount to do with material standing or social structure that actually it's more to do with lifestyle? I really don't think that's a useful dichotomy. I mean, this goes back actually to a 1977 book by a Brit called named Paul Willis. And he it's called Learning to Labor. And he talks about how boys are brought up in blue collar families and in white collar families. And in white collar families, they're brought up to be articulate, edgy, to display their originality, to send the message that they're fully ready to command and to create and invent the new society. I mean, I'm here in the the heart of Silicon Valley, and what's celebrated here is the disruptive spirit, you know, that could yield you a unicorn, a company with a billion dollar valuation. And as I keep pointing out to people, disruption just gets you one thing in blue collar jobs and that's fired. So as Paul Willis pointed out in 1977, blue collar guys are brought up to try to arm them to create a settled middle-class life where that means they've got to get up and go to the same often not very fulfilling job every day for 40 days straight on time and without an attitude. So they're much more respectful of authority. They're much more respectful of the institutions that 
aid self-discipline. The church, the traditional religion, the military, family life. So I, I think that it's really important to recognize that both of these classes have their own folkways and that affect everything from the coffee you drink first thing in the morning to how you raise your children to how you express universal human yearnings for connection and spirituality to what your ideals of family life are. Those folkways work really, really well for each different class location. They're just really different because each class uh, is going to play a very different role in the economy. So the idea that, you know, we have to, is this really economics or is this really cultural or aesthetic? It's all part of the package. These packages fit together. They have an internal logic that includes economics, but is not solely economic. What are the, I mean, because obviously this book is talking about the white working class as a group that presumably has um, to a certain degree homogenous kind of desires political desires I mean what are the defining concerns of the American white working class that so many of uh, the American political elite are seemingly misunderstanding or ignoring? well first of all the spurious precision of the stereotype what I'm talking about is dispositions represented by different percentages of people in different social classes. It's not that every white working class person is this way and every professional managerial elite PME is that way. So that's that's understood. But some of the extreme cultural condescension of the PME to traditional religion is a good example of a class insult that is seen by the PME as just sophistication. Another is the sense in which one identifies deeply with one's local community, a sense of rootedness, um, as opposed to cosmopolitanism. Another good example, uh, cosmopolitan is just seen as a sign of sophistication. In fact, it's a sign of social privilege. That typically means you went to university, you met people all over the world, you have an international network and international opportunities. If you didn't go to university and your economic prospects depend not on that global network, but on a small group of family and friends, then you're going to really highly value that social solidarity and be profoundly shocked that the PME doesn't seem to feel any responsibility towards other people from their own country. This is just shocking and hurtful. Well, finally then, you end by saying that we need to heal the rift between whiter, the white elites and the white working class. But it strikes me as what you've you know talked about in terms of the fact that you mentioned in the book that this isn't just an issue that's dropped out of the sky. It's been growing for a very long time. Can it ever be the case that that rift doesn't exist, certainly in the way that society is organized? I mean, can can that be healed? Is it possible for that to heal? Well, class ain't going away anytime soon. <laughs> Newsflash, aren't you glad you had this little chat? On the other hand, what I think has already begun to change is that um, blissful class cluelessness of the professional managerial elite. I can't tell you the number of people who have told me 
both in book events and through hundreds of, of letters that I've received, your book was really a wake-up call and made me completely change the way I see not only the white working class, but also myself. listening to the spike podcast and to get your daily dose of spiked opinion head to spiked-online.com subscribe to our podcast feed and if you'd like to help spike to continue to thrive please share this podcast and be sure to make a donation thanks for listening